From Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is Monday, the 2nd of November, 2020. Uh, One day to go before uh, Election Day. Yikes, it's uh, finally going to be over. Let's get it over with, shall we? Uh, Let's... uh, Let's talk about it all first uh, half hour or so with uh, John Margolis, political columnist with vtdigger.org and uh, a veteran of covering uh, several uh, presidential campaigns for prominent national publications. In the uh, second half hour, we're going to be speaking with Katie Jickling, a uh, healthcare writer with uh, VT Digger. She is uh, going to be uh, getting us up to date on what's going on with the pandemic in the state and as well as... Uh, talking about this uh, cyber attack on the uh, University of Vermont Health Network uh, that uh, really um, caused great upset and consternation beginning last week in that uh, in that hospital system. Uh, later on in the program, after we go to uh, one of our uh, mid-show breaks for some CBS News uh, conversation, we will be uh, talking with uh, Gary Miller and... Uh, Let's see, Johnny Wydell, there we go, from uh, Johnny Wydell's from the Middlebury area. Gary Miller lives in Montpelier. They're both involved in something called Writers for Recovery, and it's a group that uh, sort of intermingles literary pursuits with uh, addiction recovery here in Vermont. Uh, It seems to be a, a burgeoning thing, and we'll be finding out all about it in the latter hour of the program this morning. But uh, let's begin our conversations this morning with, with uh, John Margolis of uh, VT Digger. I believe he's on the phone with us. John, thank you for joining us on this snowy morning. I hope you are holed up somewhere where you don't have to drive right away. Uh, no, and I don't, we don't even see any snow here in South Burlington. Not oh, okay. <laughs> well, it's coming down pretty hard here in Montpelier where I am, so... Uh, I guess that's uh, that's what it is. It's all coming, folks. Anyway, uh, John, um, what do you what do you make of this uh, of this campaign and its sort of uh, it nearing its climax, obviously, uh, and um, how I don't know. Maybe maybe it's not as weird as I think, but it strikes me as a pretty weird campaign given the coronavirus pandemic in the uh, I don't even want to say the background, more like the foreground. And of course, all this talk from the president about it, it being rigged and a fraud, et cetera. What do you What do you see here? Well, they're all weird, but this is weirder and perhaps the weirdest. And uh, it's it's because of the pandemic and this particular presidency, which is unprecedented in uh, recent American history, and I think in all of American history, in many ways. Uh, whether it's coming to its end or uh, or about to be renewed, we don't know. The polls uh, indicate that it is likely to be coming to its end, but uh, that's not a certainty. Yeah, and and uh, I mean, one thing about the polls that uh, I would, if I were a pollster, I'd be very worried about uh, real powerful disaffection, especially among people who. Who then end up supporting President Trump, and um, they, uh, you know, they they, uh, they they hear a pollster call and who says, "Hi, I'm from um, polling for Washington Post and ABC News or something," and uh, and immediately their their uh, fake news hate the media antenna go up, and um, 
and there's a there might be a tendency, frankly, to uh, <clears throat> give the uh, give the pollster a little bit of a song and dance, if you know what I mean. Um, hang up on the pollster. Yeah, the the pollsters are aware of that, and they have done what they can to adjust for it. That doesn't mean that it, it may not be. There are two or three problems that polling always has, and they always. Uh, realize it after the polls turn out to be sort of wrong. Although we, I think it's important to remember, in 2016, the national polls were not wrong. They were misinterpreted mm-hmm. or overinterpreted by people like me. I wasn't really doing, doing it full-time anymore, but by my colleagues in the political press, we saw a two, a three-point lead for Hillary Clinton, and too many people said, well, she's obviously going to win. In the in the battleground states, the polls were, were also off only a couple of points, which was mostly within the margin of error. Most of those polls were not being done by the major polling firms. They decided not to bother because those states were not considered competitive. That was one mistake. Another mistake they made, which they all acknowledged it quite soon thereafter, was they did not wait, that's W-E-I-G-H-T, wait, on the basis of college graduation, they waited on the basis of race and gender and a couple of things, but they hadn't been doing it on the basis of, do you have a bachelor's degree, which turns out, especially among white people, to be a big political dividing line, and that did, had not emerged until 2016. So the polls, the polls were not so bad in 2016. I don't think they're very off. This year, which brings, you know, here's a big, big potential uh, uh, problem or at least difficult situation. The last poll uh, just came out this morning by Suffolk University in Boston, which is one of the better polling firms, gives Biden an eight-point lead. The other big national polls give him even more than that, ten. Uh, I think one of them is even twelve. Well, stick with the eight. That's ten million people. Uh, mm-hmm. That would mean that would if you have a 10 million vote uh, lead, that's a majority, 51, maybe even 52 percent uh, of the vote. If he nonetheless loses the election, even if he uh, uh, through the electoral college, even if he loses the electoral college fair and square and openly, that's kind of a crisis in a democracy. If, if, you know, it was okay in 2016, Hillary Clinton had about 2.8 million more votes than Trump, but she didn't have a majority. She had a 48% plurality, which was two points more than his. In 2000, Al Gore had 600,000 more votes than George W. Bush. That, that's sort of a tie. A 10 yeah, million vote yeah. margin is not sort of a tie. That's mm-hmm. a democracy. The guy who gets 10 million more votes ought to take office, you would think. So you would we could think. have a, a we could have a, a you know, and this assumes that, and if it's worse, if it gets to the point where Trump wins by winning Pennsylvania because the a court tells Pennsylvania not to count a hundred thousand of their mail-in ballots, then you get into a real, a real uh, a problem. Hmm. Um. One, one thing that I, I well, I, I, actually, I, I meant to mention, uh, we, we do welcome uh, calls from listeners, and uh, 244-1777 is the local number here in uh, Waterbury. The toll-free number is one eight seven seven two nine one eight seven seven. 291 
8255 or 291 talk and uh, I believe we have Ruth on the line with us from Shelburne, from uh, Sheldon good morning Ruth Yes yesterday I participated in a wonderful event it was a Trump train rally that started in St Albans Vermont thousands of people showed up we traveled from St Albans to Highgate and then we went down towards Georgia and back all along the route that we went, people came out of their houses with flags and cheered us on. And all of the traffic coming towards us was honking and giving us thumbs up of support. This was really something really joyful and wonderful, and we're not getting one bit of news coverage about it. So hmm. I think the polls are all wrong. Franklin County is going to go for Trump. Thank you. Okay, thanks for the call, Ruth. Uh, John, what do you think? That should have been. That should have been in the. In the uh, I didn't see every paper or every uh, uh, go through every TV Vermont TV station, but that is a story. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. know why that's not gotten. I haven't even checked the Burlington Free Press press this morning. That should yep. have gotten some coverage. Well, uh, you would think Vermont so. Is not uh, gonna, Vermont is not going to go for. Donald Trump. I don't even think Franklin County is going to go for Donald Trump. Though I suppose that's possible. But uh, but you know that doesn't mean he doesn't have support here. He's got about a third, roughly, of the of the vote. That's a big loss, but it's not a small number of people. A third of yeah. the people is a lot of people. Yep, it, 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 you're you're right about that. And uh, you know, and and I think one of the dangers of um, a lot of political coverage is that um you know if a lot of political coverage would be when writers uh, <clears throat> look at that third of the electorate and say well that's nowhere near half so we can sort of not not pay that very much attention i think there, there's a danger there that uh well, there um is, go ahead i think maybe this didn't get if this didn't get much coverage and i said i haven't looked through everything if it didn't it was a rainy sunday and people, you know, uh, uh, news organizations, uh, everybody has their other assignments and everybody's busy. And it's not going to be a um, it's not going to change anything that that caravan that uh, Ruth described. Still, I think it should be, I think it's a story and should have been covered. Uh, but yeah. I don't think it, if it wasn't covered, I don't think it's because people don't like Donald Trump. I think they just everybody was otherwise occupied. It was. Sunday, after all, and even newspaper reporters are human beings and get a day off. <laughs> well, i got to tell you, I mean, I, I think to, to the extent that wasn't covered, um, you know, it, 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 it's part of the story, and it's a very sad story about the state of the of the news media in, in Vermont and in, in, in America right now, which is that I don't know how many reporters were working yesterday. You know, well, we, uh, you know, that's right, and especially the newspapers, and I think the television stations—they they don't have as many reporters as they had some years ago. Fortunately, we had bigger, uh, and and I think um, VPR may have beefed up its news staff over the last few years a bit, and its coverage. Um, and Seven Days, I think, also has, has certainly not reduced its coverage, and perhaps. Increased it, but but clearly the um, the Montpelier, the Burlington, the Rutland, uh, Bennington, all those newspapers have fewer people than they used to have. Um, yeah. I don't know whether the Franklin County 
weeklies covered that because it was really more of a local story. She said they went all the way down to Georgia. That's beyond, that's beyond Franklin County. Anyway, um, I think, it, you know, if I were an editor, I would have covered the story. But, yeah. But I'm not. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, well, John, um, uh, talk to me a little bit about, about the, um, about that sense that you you might get from Ruth's phone call that that there's a, there is a lot of uh, support out there for President Trump. Maybe it's way more than a third in other states, and you know Vermont, yeah, but uh, but uh, Pennsylvania or uh, or uh, Wisconsin or uh, is it being underestimated in those places? Well, I don't think so, but we'll find out. Um, well, we may not even really find out. <clears throat> tomorrow night in, in those places um he's got in the 40s uh, mm-hmm. low to mid 40s even some into the upper forties. he just has uh, less support than biden in most of the polling that's been done uh the polls are not perfect it's survey research it includes a margin of error that shows that it's it's uh, survey research is based on laws of probability probability always has a little um and mar- not just you know a realm of uncertainty to it. So mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, and is is the so-called shy Trump voter who either won't get polled or lie to the pollster? Uh, are there enough of those to have thrown those polls off in say Wisconsin? I just saw a poll that showed uh, uh, Biden with a really hefty lead in Wisconsin, and they're not pay- nobody's campaigning in Wisconsin these last couple of days. It's Michigan, Pennsylvania. Trump is worried about Georgia and Florida. Uh, it, it's basically Pennsylvania, Michigan, and even Ohio, uh, which had gone for Trump by a big margin. The one poll that would have disturbed me if I were in the Biden camp is the Iowa poll, which showed uh, Trump pulling away in Iowa to another easy victory there. The reason that would disturb me is Demographically, Iowa is not unlike big parts of of Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan. Yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, if, if those people in Iowa are breaking toward Trump, why are perhaps so are similar folks in those other states? But you know, here's 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 something that I've, I'm trying to figure out, and, and I'm really having a struggle. Which is in 2016, you know, tr- Trump won by a whisker. I mean, he 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 he, he oh, lost they, the popular they vote. An inside straight. They just yeah. filled an inside straight by just eking out small victories in those three states. Yes. Right, and 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 this time he has uh, some pretty serious sort of structural and background stuff going against him. One of which is the pandemic. Uh, yeah. And there there in his performance has been pretty close to universally panned. Um, and at the same time, he has uh, he has a, um, a, a, a allegedly a real softening among supporting key demographics, including seniors and uh, and women. Uh, you yep. know, I've seen numbers indicating he's double digits down with women nationally, et cetera. Um, and so it, it it seems like that all other things being equal. We would be looking at a pretty big Biden victory here. Well, and we may be. By the way, we may be. These polls may all be absolutely right, and Biden could kind of run the table on these uh, states, including maybe Florida, North Carolina, Arizona. 
and and run up a big electoral college victory. Interestingly, where Trump is doing a little better is among Hispanic voters and mm-hmm. even among some African-American voters, especially younger men. Uh, he's doing a bit better than he was in uh, in 2016, the uh, the important thing that happened with the minority vote was that, that people didn't vote, especially black voters in Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Detroit. They they just some of them stayed home, partly yep. influenced by some of this Russian misinformation stuff that was coming into their computers, telling them what a terrible person Hillary Clinton was, and so they just decided to stay home. Uh, there fewer of them are staying home this year, but Trump's support among some of those folks has inched up a bit. John, refresh me. You uh, you covered uh, how many presidential campaigns did you cover for major newspapers back in the day? Well, uh, I covered. Um, I did not cover the McKinley Bryan race, as some people say I did back in eighteen ninety six. I covered. Um, I, I actually, when I still worked for Newsday, I spent two weeks uh, on the George Wallace campaign in 1968, and then I went over to the Chicago Tribune's Washington Bureau, and I covered all the elections from 72 through 96. Wow, that's quite a run. Hey, uh, we have uh, Fred from Newbury on the phone. Good morning, Fred. Good morning. Hey, my question is, if... Uh Biden wins uh, the electoral college vote, and he wins 55 or 57 percent of the popular vote. Would that be an indication that the country is not polarized? No. Well, it would be an indication that it's that it has a that that there's a working majority and a functioning majority, especially if the Democrats win the Senate. Uh, and then you could, you know, you would have a governing majority uh, in the House, the Senate, and the presidency. And that's what you picture there. I don't think he's going to get 57. He could get 55. I'd be surprised at that. But if he, you know, if you get even 52 or something like that, that's a majority of, of the vote. If he, if it got up higher than that, toward 55. It would really be a mandate and a governing majority. Uh, the country is still polarized. You just look at what happened yesterday in the New York area where Trump uh, Trump supporters tied up traffic, apparently on the New Jersey Turnpike and also on the what's now known as the Mario Cuomo Bridge, uh, the name change, being changed by his son, the current Governor Cuomo, used to be the Malcolm Wilson Bridge. I knew Malcolm Wilson. He was lieutenant governor and then governor of New York way, way back. Um, but, you know, uh, that that kind of thing. You, you, and look what happened in Michigan. Uh, even before we knew about the the attempt to kidnap and possibly burn, murder the governor, you had armed protesters go flooding the, the state capitol. And you have similar uh, activities on the left side of the political spectrum. Uh, so uh, we had some right here in Burlington. So I think the country is polarized. I don't think we can so, try to deny so that. If, so if the Democrats won all three houses, would the country uh, uh, be still polarized? Well, we would still have a polarized electorate. We would see if the Democrats managed to use that governing effective majority to enact useful and successful 
programs, the country might well become less polarized. Okay. Uh, Fred, uh, thank you for the call. Hey, John, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta ask you about something you just said, which was the, uh, the, the, that, uh, we, you know, you talked about the, the, uh, apparent plot to kidnap and perhaps, uh, execute or murder the, uh, governor of Michigan. And then you said we've seen similar things on the left and, uh, including here in Burlington, uh, we have, we haven't seen well, any, nobody, it, no, nobody, nobody tried to kill anybody or kidnap anybody, but you've seen, You've seen people taking the law into their own hands and disrupting day-to-day activity. They, these people actually did no did no harm, and had a good and and had a legitimate argument in their basic point. But 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 you know, and but burning the newspapers is not a good sign. That has echoes of fascism, just as uh, 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 flooding the, the state capital with. Um, with uh, armed uh, protesters does. They didn't hurt yeah, um, either side. Her, nobody hurt anybody. The armed protest, protesters didn't hurt anybody, and burning the newspapers doesn't hurt anybody. But it's an indication of we, we're not going to be we're not going to be uh, confined by law and the what had been the norms of democracy. And this is not new. We've had this on both the left and the right for for the last several decades, if not the last couple of centuries, factions. What is what is different, I think, is that the factions are getting, especially on the right, though someone on the left also, getting bigger and less restrained. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know. I, I I sort of I think there's a qualitative difference uh, between. Um, you know, an implied threat of lethal force, which really is what happens when armed people show up at the state capitol. You know, walking into the into the into the legislative chambers with with you know with automatic weapons or semi-automatic weapons or whatever. Uh, that's you know that's that's a level different from, and I, I certainly <laughs> I certainly don't approve of burning newspapers either but um no, it, is different. It, it is different you're right it's not it's not the same thing but but both of them are somewhat have somewhat disturbing echoes yeah i, I yeah i i agree with that I, I i think it's just um and and i'm wondering you know clearly we we had uh we had some uh armed people uh, i remember there being pictures of uh I think it was the Black Panthers or somebody like that back in the early 70s or late 60s. Uh, there were pictures taken of people with guns and so on. So that, in I mean, California, I, yes. Mm-hmm. This stuff is not uh, completely unprecedented, but I'm wondering if you have you are you aware of another presidential election uh, that sort of had this much of that kind of ferment going on underneath it and sometimes popping out into the open. No, no, not certainly not in the last, uh, in our lifetimes, or at least our adult lifetimes. And mine now goes back a ways. And, uh, and no, nothing close. And never yeah. before has a president or any candidate suggested that he might not accept the results of the election. 
which we have again yesterday. Have we, have we ratcheted down to a new normal, or is this uh, is this an, yes. an, an anomaly and we'll sort of go back to normal, you know, in 24 and 28 and 32, et cetera? That, that is the big question, Dave, which we may have answers, have answers to later this week. Uh, All right. But that's a very hey, John, I got to get. I appreciate appreciate you joining us this morning. It's always good talking with you, and uh, let's talk again uh, as the uh, mop-up happens or whatever. Thanks. Okay, Thank Dave. you, sir. All righty. Yep. Uh, let's go to a bottom of the hour break for some CBS News, a couple words from our sponsors, and uh, be talking about health care uh, issues with uh, Katie Jickling of ET Digger in uh, just a few minutes. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rock and Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. We are back, and uh, thanks for staying with us into our second half hour this morning, uh, Monday morning, November the 2nd. 2020. We're going to be speaking uh, with uh, Katie Jickling. She is a healthcare writer for uh, vtdigger.org. And uh, Katie has had a rather full plate lately. I shouldn't laugh because uh, some of the stuff she's writing about is very, very serious. And uh, but boy, that's a, that is a heck of a portfolio if you're a healthcare writer these days because. Uh, we're going to be talking about two of the biggest stories, one that's been going on for months now, that being the coronavirus crisis, and uh, this other one that popped up last week, this uh, cyber attack on uh, Vermont's largest hospital system, the University of Vermont uh, Medical Center and uh, Health Network, uh, and uh, let's uh, let's dig in. Uh, Katie Jickling, thank you very much for joining me this morning. Thank you. So let's see. Uh, let's start with the uh, with the UVM health network goings on. Uh, what is the latest there? Yeah. So last Wednesday, the UVM health network and and specifically the medical center in Burlington, um, their electronic medical record system went down. They realized that they um, had been hacked or had been the, the subject of a cyber attack. And as you probably have heard, this is one of many of such attacks at hospitals around the country. Um, there have been dozens in the last few months and, um, you know, many in the last few days as well. So we learned later or, you know, on, on Thursday, I guess it was, that the FBI was investigating UVM Medical Center held a press conference on uh, on those days as well, late last week, and they said, you know, it's going to be multiple days. We don't know when we're going to be back up. Um, some some appointments have some, but not all appointments have been canceled, and the staff has moved from the electronic medical records to some to paper records. But there have been delays. Um, there have been there were some temporary delays with COVID tests um, and some 
appointments were uh, canceled or postponed and certain like ra- the radiology department was offline that that kind of thing so it certainly is having an impact on patients and it is also you know been been quite a challenge for staff up there as i've heard yeah um and and by the way full disclosure uh my wife is an employee in the network she works uh at one of the practices affiliated with uh, the Central Central Vermont Medical Center, um, but the uh, th- this is really quite uh, a wake up call, I would think, to folks who may may be wondering right now have uh, medical medical systems, not just UVM, but you mentioned that uh, this is happening around the country. Um, have they become overly reliant on their computer networks to uh, basically underpin? Their daily functions, and uh, or are they really able to stand up? Uh, you know, ninety-eight percent of what they do, uh, even even in this condition. It's a good question, and it is one that that I asked um, some of the UVM medical center officials. But I mean, look, we all know that that so many companies have gotten hacked before there are constantly you know hackers or, or people online trying to breach privacy um and and you know you know from even the, the phishing emails you get in in your own email of um that that this is just, this stuff's just um has proliferated and it's almost mm-hmm. impossible to avoid in a lot of ways so uh there there have been um Attacks, or, or there have been um, reports of an Eastern European and Russian or Russian um, group that has been behind some of these hacking attempts. Um, we do not know yet whether UVM Medical Center is uh, w- was targeted by uh, that particular group, um, but I, I think that that. Um, in some ways, these kind of you can you can protect your privacy, you can back up all your information, but this this is just inevitable, and, and we're likely we're not going to see hospitals going back to um, paper medical records. That's not necessarily better for patients, but mm-hmm. you know it it is good to have these backup plans, and we're certainly reminded of that. Yeah, and uh, I mean w- when you. Uh... When you hear folks from places like the FBI uh, talking about this, and uh, and and when people think about the fact that this has been happening uh, at other hospitals around the country, uh, that raises an obvious question: Is what is the motivation here? Why does anybody want to invade uh, University of Vermont Medical Center's health records? It's. That is also an, an, a good question and one that we don't have a lot of answers to. Um, mm-hmm. I think we, we do see these are hospitals that are being attacked by a foreign um, group, at least in some cases, during a pandemic. And so I think, you know, we, we've seen foreign interference in our elections. We and, and I think um, sort of spreading panic or, um, you know, right right before an election, you know, that may or may not be, you know, a coincidence. And so whether what exactly those motivations are, I, I don't think anybody 
really knows. But I think, um, you know, undermining um, infrastructure um, and making things more chaotic has shown to be a motivation of some of similar type attacks in the past. And so I think that that um, maybe maybe an issue we, we don't know yet. You know, I've, there have been suggestions of, well, is this somehow politically related? Is there a political motivation? And that's another question we just don't know the answer to. Hmm. And is there any uh, any sense that uh, that at some point there's going to be an endpoint to this incident? Uh, you know, that the, the hospital will say all clear, we're back to normal. Everybody can go back on their on their own portal. You know, people. I mean, this is part of I think what, part of what went down. Or tell me if that's the case. Um, you know, many many patients these days are able to go online and read about. Um, actually make requests in their own little healthcare portal for uh, prescription refills and and find out about upcoming appointments and even ask their doctors a question and so on and so forth. Uh, a lot of people have found this to be a very handy way to communicate with their healthcare providers. Um, but it's down from what I understand, and uh, and so folks haven't been able to do that in the last week or so or five days, I guess now. Um, and uh, is, is, is that coming up anytime soon? And and or uh, are people um, are are people uh, talking about you know how how do we know this is over basically? You're right. The the my patient portal, which is the place where where patients can as you say, get their prescriptions, see their medical history, see which appointments are coming up, that is down. Mm-hmm. So is the um, ways that the sort of the, the ways that doctors and nurses might get into that system. So where they would be logging patient information and also sort of looking at those um, appointments. And there are yep. also some, as of late last week, it was unclear, you know, there there have been some some instances where um, the the system for scheduling appointments in some departments is is down as well, mm-hmm. and so that has been challenging. There was no basically what happened was they saw that the IT system the IT department saw that there was a this disruption. They immediately shut the whole system down. So mm-hmm. as of last Friday. They and you know and they they worked all weekend so there may be updates to this but um, they they the medical center staff didn't necessarily know what was available or what information had been backed up that kind of thing that yeah. was just you know would would be they were sort of working through the technological issues and then uh, as they sort of restarted things they would have more information. So that's something that will be coming uh, shortly. In terms of how long it will take, it depends how long, how sort of uh, deeply, so to speak, the hackers were able to reach into the network and the impact that they could have. So in some cases, a hacker will go into the system sort of penetrate through some of the passwords and um, that kind of thing, and then we'll go in, 
find the backup, backed up data, and then delete it. And in those situations, this is typically called ransomware, they will ask for a ransom, and the hospital can go through, sometimes, you know, we'll have to hire a lawyer and go through months of um, legal proceedings and basically figuring out how to get the data back, how much money they have to pay to this group to get their information back. So that's like a worst case scenario. There is no indication that that happened at UVM Medical Center. Uh, President Steve Leffler said he had not heard from the attacker or had gotten any, you know, requests for ransom or anything like that. So in a worst case scenario, it could take weeks or months. Best case scenario, it the system is back up and running later this week. Boy, it's uh, yeah, it's kind of nerve-wracking. I mean, do you, is there any talk about uh, the possibility that uh, you know this is sort of a dry run for other uh, kind of a rehearsal attack for I don't know, going after utility grids or the other stuff, you know, real infrastructure in our in our uh, that undergird our our society really these days? Uh, any thought like that that folks are having? I was speaking with a cybersecurity expert last week, and he actually works to combat these sort of attacks. And previously, in the last several months, he had been seeing these malware or ransomware attacks on businesses in every sector of all sizes, and they really hadn't specifically targeted, he was saying, any particular type of organization or group until Mm -hmm. this recent attack on hospitals. So um, there's certainly why exactly that is, as we talked about before, we don't know yet. Um, That's definitely something that officials are investigating, and the FBI certainly um, will be very, you know, would be important to find out for them. But so while certain things like... um, you know, attacks on an electric grid or uh, other critical infrastructure could be a possibility. We don't have any indication that that has started happening on a broader scale in any way. But it will, these kind of attacks will, should make hospitals and companies, CEOs, that kind of thing, really double down on security and have those backup plans in place. One hospital I talked to, Copley Hospital in Morrisville, they were backing up all their information on a physical tape that was not connected to the Internet that you could then take out. And then, um, you know, so you have this hard copy backup in, in case of these sort of attacks. Yeah, that's uh, and it'll be interesting to see what sorts of uh, what sorts of backup systems are put in place, you know, new additions to the uh to the uh, sort of cyber infrastructure of an institution like UVM Medical Center to uh, basically be ready for the more ready for this kind of stuff in the future. Not 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 to say they weren't uh, protected to some extent already, uh, but certainly I would think that uh, if uh, if any if any of the uh, techies up there were saying we'd like a bigger budget for this aspect of uh, of cyber protection, they're probably going to get their bigger bu- their bigger budget now. I don't know, but uh, just the way organizations 
frequently work. Um, Katie, uh, for all the uh, news out of the UVM cyber attack, the UVM Medical Center and Health Network cyber attack, we uh, still have a lot of news uh, going on, uh, kind of a constant drumbeat in the background and sometimes the foreground on the uh, COVID-19 crisis and uh, the state's response here. Uh, it sounds like it is uh, ticking up in Vermont, but not as badly as in other places. Have I got that right? That is right. We have seen a couple different outbreaks that have started to spread Um we saw one uh, based out of a, a hockey rink in Montpelier that has we that has about um, 87 cases so far linked to that. I believe, and it, we learned last week that it was actually connected to an outbreak at uh, St. Michael's College, which has um, you know more than more than 40. Cases now, so mm-hmm. you know, and, and we have also seen some. A couple schools have we've seen cases in, in schools around the state. Some of which have, have gone fully remote to prevent the spread of the virus. And I, you're right. You know, we we are still the only state. You know, you've seen the, the nationwide charts of COVID spread, and we're the only state or one of the only states still in the green. So we're doing quite well still, but I think, you know, the, the, the high numbers are getting closer. We are seeing counties around surrounding Vermont getting having higher numbers of cases. And I think the real question is whether we can contain these small outbreaks. If they stay clusters or if they lead to more community transmission. So last week, the governor and uh, state officials were really saying, um, you know, reminding Vermonters to stay home, to wear your mask, to don't travel. You know, we're, 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 we've done well so far to keep it up. That was definitely their message. Um, have we gone back to a stay home, stay safe order similar to what the, uh, what the governor was, uh, was saying last spring? We are, as now, it's not the same because, as you know, hospitals are open and back then, you know, restaurants were all closed. That's no longer the case. I think Mm -hmm. it will be, the governor knows that it, it will be harder, I would say, to impose some of those really stringent rules a second time. I think he would be willing to do it, but it would, it may not be popular. And so... Uh, Health Commissioner Mark Levine and Governor Scott, they're really pushing the, you know, hoping people will do it voluntarily. And mm-hmm. I, I do think, you know, he has again and again said, don't travel, be careful for the holidays. Um, they will be considering, you know, whether to move schools remotely for a period around the holidays, if that will help. Or So those are all options that they're discussing, but I think incremental measures are really what um, they're they're looking at. At least that's the messaging we're getting. Yeah, it's a, <clears throat> it is a um, it's a tense time, I guess. On is the best way to describe it. On uh, if you are if you are you know somebody like uh, Health Commissioner Mark Levine or the Governor Phil Scott, looking at Vermont's COVID numbers and trying to figure out how do we keep. Um, 
our state relatively safe. Uh, we've seen certainly uh, in, increasing numbers and uh, changes on maps from yellow to red and so on for several counties in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. And uh, so it is certainly happening right around us. Uh, and then, you know, we've had some upticks in Vermont, uh, and uh, we'll... Uh, Obviously, uh, you know, as I say, it's, it's gotta be a nerve, a nerve wracking time for folks who want to k- keep this to a minimum. Um, holidays coming, a lot of families would normally, uh, be doing big gatherings for Thanksgiving and or, uh, you know, Christmas, Hanukkah, that holiday period, uh, soon following. And, uh, I'm just wondering, uh, it sounds like, uh, even, uh, turkey producers are trying to produce smaller birds. So. Wow. Yeah. Um, hey, Katie Jickling, uh, I think that's our cue that we're about out of time here on this segment of the Dave Graham Show. I really appreciate you uh, joining us and uh, filling us in on what's going on on a couple of big healthcare stories out there. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dave. Let's go to some top of the hour CBS News from the uh, WDEV FM and AM, and uh, we'll be back with more of the Dave Graham Show to follow. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. Thanks for staying with us into our second hour this morning. And uh, glad to say we have one of our CBS News correspondents with us for a little one-on-one conversation here with uh, WDEV FM and AM. Paul Vialis, uh, law enforcement analyst with uh, CBS, joins us. And Paul, wanted to ask you about uh, about some of the goings-on with the campaign and uh, etc out there let's start with this incident in texas the other day where apparently a bunch of uh, trump supporters surrounded a bus uh, of the biden campaign and uh, did some weird stuff whether they actually attempted to run the bus off the road or what was going on i think is probably a matter of interpretation and some dispute but uh what do you know about this, and are any criminal charges likely to result? There probably will be. I know the FBI is investigating, Secret Service is investigating, but, you know, Dave, this is the kind of stuff that we're seeing across the entire country. This isn't an isolated incident. And, and, mm-hmm. it's, and it's not isolated to one side of the aisle or the other. I mean, you've got people supporting Biden that are terrorizing people that are supporting Trump. You've got people supporting Trump that are terrorizing people that are supporting Biden. This is going on. This is really a reflection of... The, the, the disparity, the division that we have in our country and, and the disdain-fueled rhetoric that we've been flying around the majority of this year. And it's really coming to fruition at this point. And unfortunately, it's going to make for a very busy and, and you know, concerning election week. And um, do you uh, – there, there was another incident in – Somewhere in the New York area, I guess just yesterday, of uh, similar traffic disruption. Although it sounds like it wasn't quite as uh, as, as as risky as much as it was just uh, annoying to a lot of people, right? I mean, it's slowing people down basically. 
Yeah, but again, Dave, I mean, these are things that we're seeing across the entire country. I mean, north, south, east, and west. And Mm -hmm. it's going to continue. I mean, everything from people trying to disrupt people from voting to uh, just arbitrarily stopping people in supermarkets, I've been hearing, and and criticizing people for, you know, having a I support Biden button or I support a Trump button type of thing. So uh, the, the message here is that this is, this is not, no, no community is going to be immune to this one over the next 48 hours, that's for sure. Yeah, um, and, um, you know, just wondering, uh, it, it, it seems as though President Trump has been uh, sort of more welcoming to some of these behaviors, I, I think, than, uh, than uh, Vice President Biden uh, during the campaign. Would you agree with that, or do you think that, that uh, Biden has been doing anything to sort of encourage encourage bad behavior out there? Well, you know, I mean, again, I'm a fact guy, just looking at what's in front of me, and I, I see what happened at the DNC and how, um, you know, Republican members of the Republican Party were, you know, accosted, and people were crying out for the Biden camp to say, hey, you know, denounce this. They never said anything. And then you have, you know, the rock-throwing incident where people are saying, well, you know, the president should do more to denounce that. So I don't know that there's one side or the other that really is standing here that, that can be blameless in anything. Uh, and they're all taking their own approaches. But what is clear is that this is not limited to one side of the aisle or the other, that both sides have their own groups. And, again, this is the crystallization of the gross disparity in culture that we have in our country and the disdainful rhetoric that's been fueling more and more violent action. And I hate to say this, but you don't need to read the tea leaves on this one to say that this coming week is, is going to be a contentious, very you know, risk-filled week for a lot of people. And uh, would you, I mean, this is uh, this is more so than in past campaigns, isn't it? Or how would you? Oh yeah. How would you? Without a doubt, I mean, there's no question about it. There's never been there's never been an election where the national guard has been deployed before anything even happens because of the degree of foreseeability of what we've allowed to permeate in our society relative to the elimination or the minimization of of protesting and the escalation of rioting, um, the, the manner in which people have been allowed, permitted by government officials in various jurisdictions around our country to burn buildings down, to occupy certain areas. We've never seen this before. And, and, and this is going to metastasize to the point where tomorrow or in 48 hours we're going to have, or we may have, we should have a new president. And, you know, only God himself knows at that point how the rest of the country is going to react. Yeah. Um, are, do you know if there are reports of uh, specific plans by groups to uh, to take action that uh, would be, you know, would cross the line into violence and so on? Yeah, I mean, I, th- there's no question that intelligence networks around the country have been picking up chatter uh, from from groups on the right side and the left side that have, have all put their little plans in place as to what they'd like to do in the event of who wins and who doesn't win. So mm-hmm. uh, without, without saying too much on that, I can say that um, that's being done. It's also being prepared for. And the, um, do you think this is the new norm, or, or are we going to re- sort of revert to some, some uh, slightly uh, less tense uh, times in, in, uh, in you know election campaign of 2024 and 2028 and so on? 
Yeah, I, I don't know, honestly. I, I have to tell you that I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I mean, you know, culturally, we've never seen a sociological divide like we've seen right now. Not even, I mean, this is worse than the 60s. This is, this is the perfect storm of things coming together at one time. And, mm-hmm. from, you know, from the pandemic to race riots to the reduction in the police response to, you know, I can go on and on. But at the end of the day, it's culminating uh, on Election Day. And, you know, will this change? I don't know. I mean, the jury's out on that. There's so many different factors right now that are going to reflect upon what we're going to define ourselves as. And that's the question. And whenever we just make that decision. Uh, is what we're going to live with. So I don't even know. I can't even say it's the new normal. I don't think we've written that script yet, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Um, have there been, uh, you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, um, that both sides are engaging pretty much equally in uh, some nefarious stuff here. Have there been incidents where Biden supporters have uh, have done anything like what the Trump supporters did to that Biden bus in Texas, maybe to a Trump yeah, bus? Yeah, it's physically accosting people. I mean, but, and that's why, you know, I'm very cautious about that in that it is not limited to one side or the other. I mean, there, yes, there has been physical violence, people, and, and I, and here's the thing, though. I can't say, uh, unequivocally that they're members of BLM, they're members of Antifa. They're claiming to be, I don't know if they're legitimately mm-hmm. members. And then you have the NFAC coming out of Atlanta, who is by far, you know, the most dangerous on that side. And then you have, a plethora of, of groups on the right side, which we saw just, you know, in Michigan recently. So, uh, yeah, there, there's no shortage of, of folks right now that have drawn a line in the sand and really are getting ready to police themselves. That is the issue that we're going to need to address as soon as whoever gets elected. Uh, that's that's, that's got to be first order of business. That's got to that's be before COVID. It has to be. because if In, in terms of the... Uh... We're not coming back from it. Yeah, in terms of the actual polling places out there, um, it is it is a federal felony to interfere with somebody's ability to vote, right? Of course it is, like it is to interfere with the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, so, And that's why law enforcement, in, even though now, here's the problem, we're reducing ranks in law enforcement right now. We don't have the bodies we did earlier in the year. So there aren't that much, you're not going to have the ability to police as much as you'd like to. But this law enforcement is still working tirelessly right now to make sure that both undercover officers, plainclothes officers, and, and you know, uniformed officers are going to be at these sites to ensure the safety of the American public to go out and vote. Uh, it, it, when you say we're reducing the ranks of law enforcement, it, it, are these uh, what individual city and state budget decisions, or what's going on there? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, you have two things. You have you have the, the the collateral result of COVID-19, where so much money has been put into this, I mean, the tax dollars. Well, then you simply just don't have the money available to pay for services like police, fire, emergency, medical, sanitation, et cetera, which is what we're seeing right now, schools, teachers, et cetera. So we're seeing that. And then you also have, you know, the brilliant decision, and I, I you, obviously I say that facetiously, uh, of defunding police. So you've cut the budget there, so you don't have the people, you don't have overtime, you have more and more law enforcement officers retiring, so we just don't have the ranks we did earlier in the year. We just don't. Hmm. 
Well, we could be in for a bumpy ride here, folks. Uh, hang on well, tight. Uh, we'll see. Hey. Next. Paul Vialis of CBS News, uh, thank you very much for spending some time this morning with us, and uh, let's talk again soon. Always a pleasure, Dave. Have a great day. You too. I'm going to take a needed breather from conversation about the election and about the COVID crisis for the next uh, few minutes here on the Dave Graham Show on WDEV, FM, and AM, and uh, invite in a couple folks from a, from a group called Writers for Recovery. It's a Vermont-based organization that is... Uh, well, by its name, you would think uh, I would be appealing to people perhaps of a somewhat literary bent who also have uh, struggled with uh, substance use disorders in their lives. And uh, uh, and I, I do believe that is the case. We have uh, two people who are involved in this group joining us to tell us all about it in the next little bit. And uh, one is Gary Miller. He lives in Montpelier. We also have uh, Johnny Waddell, who is a uh, over in the Middlebury area, and uh, I think they represent uh, sort of different groups or chapters of this organization that has uh, been birthed in Vermont and is uh, spreading around the state and I guess is now getting inquiries from other parts of the country to find out all about uh, how it is uh, proceeding. And uh, let's bring in uh, Johnny Waddell and uh, Gary Miller. Gentlemen, uh, thank you very much for joining me this morning. Hey, Dave. How are you? Doing well, uh, Johnny. Let me. Let me. Uh, let, actually, Gary. Let me start with you. Uh, would you say that you were founder or founding member of uh, Writers yeah, for Recovery? Sure. Um, Writers for Recovery was founded by um, by me and Bess O'Brien uh, about six years ago, and it was kind of came out of Bess's work um, on her film The Hungry Heart, which if if anyone out there hasn't seen it yet, you should definitely watch a great film about um, prescription drug um, addiction in Vermont. Um, and after that, Bess wanted to kind of give back to some of the people who'd been in the film, so we did an arts workshop with them, and Writers for Recovery came out of that. Hmm. And um, what what sorts of uh, membership? I mean, uh, is it purely writers, or is it uh, musicians oh, and yeah, art? and Absolutely not. Um, we do in our workshops focus on on writing. We do um, really short, like seven minute writing prompts, um, just designed to give people the opportunity to say whatever they want to say. But certainly, there are many people in our groups who don't consider themselves writers, um, but who come to Writers for Recovery because they do want to talk about, you know, their issues. Um, and they do want to share them with other people, and they want to get support from like-minded people, and that's kind of what we're all about. So, uh, how many groups are there, and how, how big, how large is a typical group? Um, you know, it, we, we run generally ten-week um, workshops, um, mm-hmm. anywhere from you know five to fifteen people, I would guess, on average, um, and we you know do probably. 15 or 20 of those a year, maybe. Um, and all, all around the state, uh, we work a lot in the correctional system in the Vermont, with the Vermont Department of Corrections. They're our primary funder, and we're mm-hmm. really um, grateful to them for that. Um, since COVID, we haven't been able to work within the, the correctional system, but we generally do. And we also work a lot in community uh, centers, such as the Turning Point Centers, which you might be familiar with, which are uh, Vermont uh, based recovery centers all around the state. 
Um, we also do some work in schools and, you know, now via, you know, Zoom, we're all kind of all over the place. So it's been, uh, it's been another opportunity for us. Hmm. And, uh, uh, and Johnny Waddell, I gather you are, uh, involved in a, in a Middlebury based group. Is that right? Well, I work at the Turning Point Center of Addison County, which is in Middlebury, mm-hmm. but I've also participated in uh, groups that Gary has facilitated, one that was sort of, you know, based in Middlebury, but it's actually on Zoom, so it doesn't really matter where you are. Yeah. And the one we're in the midst of right now is nominally based in Rutland, but again, we have people from all over the place joining at, the, at this point, so I've... I've uh, done this for maybe 15 or pushing 20 weeks um, with Gary. Uh, and I also do working at Turning Point. I do recovery coaching. So a lot of the folks I work with uh, are looking for something other than traditional recovery maybe. And they jump into writers for recovery. And they may not be writers when they start, but by the end of the first meeting, they are. Hmm. And and this is interesting to me, Johnny Waddell, especially your perspective as somebody who I'm sure has, uh, working at Turning Point has, has, uh, you know, sort of tr- tried a, a range of, uh, different approaches to, uh, working people, working with people in recovery and helping them keep their recovery going and all, all that sort of thing. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you have found this Writers for Recovery approach, uh, you know, are there, does it have particular advantages? Are there particular types of people it's most helpful for? Uh, and, and that's, you know, what, what distinguishes it from your other efforts, I guess, is the basic question. Yeah, sure. It, uh, that's a good question. We, you know, it's kind of all about connection and people feeling connected to other people and feeling supported in their recovery. And for some people, the absolute best thing is to sit in a group and just sort of speak spontaneously for others, um, including me, who I'm a person in recovery myself, who are a little more introverted. It can really feel good to uh, have this little seven-minute writing, you know, a little prompt. You write for seven minutes. There's no way to do it wrong. And uh, then if you feel like it, you can either read or you can just listen to what other people read, and that makes them feel connected, and and people keep coming back and staying uh, engaged, and that's really what it's all about. And so for somebody who enjoys writing and enjoys being with other people who enjoy writing or just expresses themselves that way, uh, it's perfect. And uh, you're, you're absolutely right that having a range of options, we say multiple paths, uh, really helps so that you can size up somebody or they can size up themselves and decide, yeah, that might work for me. I've always wanted to work on my writing, and uh, it gives them a chance to do that. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, you know, obviously uh, we think of uh, uh, sometimes just pure writers' groups, uh, uh, which uh, are a very common thing here in Vermont, uh, and uh uh, and then, of course, recovery groups, and I suppose there's uh, uh, elements of both in in this kind of uh, an effort here. Um, Gary Miller, you mentioned uh, this, the seven-minute writing prompt idea. Um, 
so uh, folks are sitting around a room, I gather, uh, or on Zoom now, uh, and uh, and they are. Uh, do they bring a notebook? Or are they writing by hand? Or are they writing into a tablet of some kind, or a people, laptop, or? People, yeah, people bring um, notebooks, physical paper notebooks. They write mm-hmm. on keyboards. They write on their phones. Um, you know, there's really, as as Johnny said, there's no way to do it wrong. Is kind of our mantra. Um, so whatever whatever works for you, I tell people, you know, if you want to bring a stone tablet and a chisel, um, <laughs> you know, feel, don't let me stop you. Um, I go a little slow for seven minutes. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, actually, it's it's quite amazing um, what people can do in seven minutes. And Johnny, did you get my message about bringing a piece of work? I don't know if you did, but if, if, if you did, uh, maybe I didn't. Did but I'll I'll look one up while you guys are talking and see. Okay, because it might be nice, if, Dave, if you have the time to just have Johnny read an example of what someone can do in seven minutes. Um, and yeah. Also, it's it's important to say that you know you don't have to write specifically about recovery if you don't want to. You can write about whatever whatever's on your mind. You know, hmm. and our, our our prompts tend to be really open ended. One prompt we often use is, "This is what I really wanted to say." You know, so I would say the prompt is, "This is what I really wanted to say." You have seven minutes go, or you know, something. It was raining outside. Seven minutes go. Um, I wanted to talk to you about something. Seven minutes go. Um, you know, I am the one who. Seven minutes go. So they're really designed to be open-ended um, and let people go wherever they want to go. And people, um, you know, if you have a group of 12 people, you're likely to have 12 radically different and equally substantive and interesting responses, which is really um, part of what makes it cool. Yeah, that, that's, okay, that, that so is I've, interesting. I I'm sorry, John. One. Okay. I found one if you want me to read this. The prompt yeah. uh, this week was... I still remember that house, uh, and we had seven minutes, and this is what I came up with. Okay. Kansas. Kansas. I can't remember much about living there, not the street or even the neighborhood, but I remember that house, the sky, the big green lawn, the swing set, where I encouraged my little sister to climb the ladder to the slide. She chickened out at the top, tried to turn around, but fell broke her leg. It was 1968, so she must have been three, and I was five. I know it was 1968 because Dr. King got shot when we lived in Fort Leavenworth. I remember that because my dad was a student at the Army War College. His table mate was Colin Powell. My dad said, they're really raising cane up in Kansas City, and I didn't know what that meant. Captain Powell said he was a good man, and my dad agreed. The Missouri River must not have been far away. I remember the clouds and the wind, the steep waves on the river, and a red and white diver's buoy bobbing on the surface and learning that someone was down below, down below those dark waters on that dreary, dreary day. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, somebody was uh, going deep there. And that's that's yeah. um, I, I, and and I and I, f- I feel like uh, if that's if that's the um, if that's the uh, if that's typical of the kinds of responses the prompts get, I could see how the um, 
the exercise is uh, very, very useful and maybe at times powerful. Um, and yeah. so uh, th- this actually was, a, this is a real-life exercise here, and this was your response, uh, Johnny? Yeah, I think this was on the 7th of August when we had. And, you know, if you go to the Writers for Recovery site and look at uh, our work, you'll see that there are three different poems, maybe, yeah, at least three that were written on that day in that group, uh, hmm. a couple of which are better than the one I just read you for sure. <laughs> and and it's really uh, typical for people to come up with things that, I don't know, I've worked on stuff for hours that doesn't come off as nicely as what happens in that group in seven minutes. And I don't know... Hmm how to describe why that magic kind of happens in a group like that, but it really does. Yeah, that, that's um, that's it. That's interesting. Uh, Gary, do you see that a lot in your groups? Uh, do you see that? Yeah, uh, you know, that... Uh, I think, it, I, first of all, the word typical was mentioned a couple times um, hmm. in this conversation, and I would say there is no typical response. Um, yeah. Some some responses are a lot shorter. Some some responses um, are maybe less poetic. Um, and we this is not you know you talk about a, a typical writer's workshop. This is not a typical writer's workshop. And that you know when someone reads something, we don't go. Um, your description was terrible. Uh, your dialogue didn't work, and I didn't understand where I was at. And you need to become a plumber instead of a writer, um, which is kind of typical of you know writer critique groups um in here all comments need to be positive and supportive so we try to identify what the writer's doing right um but also the most important thing and the thing we tend to um give the most props to is personal courage and people often um, talk very deeply about their personal stories people will say you know i just read something out loud to you that i've never told my therapist um, yeah, but they need to say it that that you know that whatever it is that shameful thing or that embarrassing thing or that trauma um, that they experience needs to come out and um, and it does. Wow! Hey, let's continue our conversation about writers uh, for recovery after we go to a brief bottom of the hour break here on the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. We'll hear a couple of words from. CBS News and then from our sponsors and we'll be back uh, very shortly folks Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rock and Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. Thanks for staying with us, folks. We're talking about Writers for Recovery, a uh, group of people who uh, get together uh, and have meetings about uh, overcoming substance abuse disorder, and uh, the uh, these meetings uh, frequently uh, feature writing. 
uh, prompts and projects, uh, seven-minute prompts, I'm told, which uh, uh, folks are producing some pretty interesting-sounding uh, writing during those uh, brief uh, seven-minute periods. I, uh, it's, it makes me smile because I certainly can recall... Uh, in my days as a reporter for the Associated Press, uh, when uh, sometimes you had to write things that uh, very very quickly, so seven minutes uh, sounds like uh, well, it would have been an eternity in some instances. <laughs> so when you're, you're you've got some breaking news or something, and it's basically uh, uh, it'd be good to have it out within one minute if possible. But uh, anyway, there you go. Hey. Um, Gary Miller and uh, Johnny Waddell are my guests. They are both involved in uh, Writers for Recovery, the uh, Vermont-based group. And, Gary, I think you were telling me that uh, um, this is something which might spread or is showing signs of doing that. You're getting inquiries from other parts of the country these days? Yeah. Well, we have gotten inquiries from all over the country in the the last, you know, six years. Um, But... You know, Zoom has been a game changer for us in a certain way. At first, of course, like everyone, we were skeptical it could even work. I mean, so much of our what we do in our groups is, you know, based on a, on personal intimacy, you know, that happens in a physical setting. And but we found out that, you know, thanks to Zoom, we can now connect with people all over. Um, in the past, I guess, three weeks, I've had, you know, I've done workshops with people from. You know, Vermont, New York City, Toronto, uh, Denver, Colorado, Twin Cities in Minnesota, rural Kentucky, and even Israel and Ireland. Um, and so, you know, we're we're trying to you know move. We have a we have a limited budget, as I mentioned. DOC um, Department of Corrections has been great with funding, and also the Rona Jaffe Foundation, a literary foundation in New York City. Um, and we recently got a great grant. Um, from the Vermont Community Foundation that's going to enable us to do some more programming up in the Northeast Kingdom, um, where we love to go. Um, and uh, But we are moving. We're, we're now working in uh, a New Hampshire County jail. Uh, we're talking now with the Department of Corrections in New Hampshire to bring programming to their state prisons via Zoom. Um, and we would love to be, you know, everywhere. We, we certainly know there's a need, and we love doing what we're doing. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, we will continue to grow. Johnny Odell, uh, there have been any number of uh, great writers, uh, poets, and et cetera, over the centuries, really, who have uh, uh, struggled with uh, substance abuse and substance use disorder in in their lives. You know, you think of anybody from uh, anybody, uh, Ernest Hemingway, Samuel Taylor, Coleridge. I mean, the list could go on for probably the rest of the show here. Um, sure. And I'm wondering, do you... Uh, do you sense that there is any any connection there, any sort of uh, personality type or anything, which is which is uh, uh, likely to uh, produce uh, great writing and uh, substance use disorder? Yeah, you know, I'm uh, a musician in addition to being a writer, and we've asked ourselves that as musicians, and I know artists ask themselves that. Leslie Jameson wrote a great book called The Recovering intoxication in its aftermath where the book almost you know for it's a thick book and it ponders that question and talks about a bunch of those 
writers, you know, Oscar Wilde and his Hemingway, uh, and also her own process. And, um, sure, maybe, maybe something about, uh, the creative process and being a creative person, uh, leads to some sort of feelings of isolation and feelings of isolation, uh, uh, along with trauma and some other things are big factors in, in what leads people to, to, uh, substance use disorder. Um, I think the, the great thing is that, uh, that writing, uh, sort of proves that recovery is possible even, and, you know, there are, great examples of writers who have, uh, including Wesley Jameson, who themselves have recovered, and you see how uh, how great their work becomes, you know, and so everybody's got a past, and sometimes that past becomes, uh, becomes really awesome, kind of like, you know, you turn uh, old rotten vegetables into compost and then you grow a garden. Uh, you wind up with something really beautiful coming out of it. A really deeply troubled past. Hmm. Gary Miller, um, you, you are, uh, a writer by trade, I understand, uh, and, uh, uh, and I'm wondering, uh, and also someone in recovery, and I, and I'm wondering what you think about this question of, uh, is, is there any, um, you know, any sort of uh, background personality that makes both uh, things a likely feature of someone's life? Uh, you know, I think I, I, I'm not really sure. I mean, certainly I've met people from all sorts of you know, backgrounds, artistic and not artistic, who are, you know, struggling with substance um, use disorder. I will say that, you know, as a young, when you're a young writer, at least when I was, you know, there's kind of this vibe around that says, oh, yeah, you've got to do this, you know. This will make you better. Um, you know, do the drugs, do the drinking. And I certainly uh, fell for it, you know. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, there's kind of a pure culture in, in the creative world. Uh, you know, but also I think what Johnny was saying is valid, too, that it can be really hard to be, a creative person and find your place in the world, and that difficulty may may lead to you know to you going down that path. It's hard to really tell, I think. Yeah, and so you, you think about writers. I don't I don't know Hunter S. Thompson, for instance, who who sort of really typified you know the Gonzo journalist from the, from the uh, late '60s, early '70s, who uh, really kind of typified that uh, hard. Uh, Hard drive, hard driving, hard drinking, hard drug using. Uh, in his case, uh, journalistic writing life, uh, and um, I, I just sort of wonder whether um, that that's actually it develops a, a harmful stereotype over time. Where if somebody is uh, a person who who uh, avoids using any uh, mind-altering substances in his or her life and maybe just always has for whatever reason uh, and almost is, is, uh, would feel maybe out of place or something uh, in trying to break into uh, a literary uh, life? Would that be a, uh, an issue? I, I think it's possible, sure, you know. Um, and another question I think that people don't really ask sometimes is, you know, 
um, Hunter Thompson was an amazing and fantastic journalist. What would his career have been like if he didn't do drugs, if he got sober? Um, for one thing, there's, there may be a likelihood that he'd still be with us. And what would he be doing now, you know? Um, a lot of a lot of the writers who do, um, you know, who are associated kind of with that kind of lifestyle have died young and like, you know, mm-hmm. and written poorly and written poorly in their last years. Jack Kerouac's a great example of that. You know, what would Jack Kerouac have done if he if he would have gotten sober? You know, would he have become a worse writer? I doubt it. Yeah. Um, huh. I mean, there there is a sort of again. I think it's almost it's oversimplified. It's probably a stereotype to some extent, but there's this notion you hear uh, about sort of calling forth the muse or whatever, and 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 uh, uh, and that some people will you know shoot up or drink or whatever they think they need to do to uh, to get into that frame of mind that allows them to express themselves and so on and so forth. Um, what do you make of all of that kind of whole romanticized notion of this uh, this lifestyle? I, I can only speak for myself that you know I it didn't do me any good. I don't think uh, you know. Um, I don't know, Johnny. What do you think of that question? Yeah, you know when I when I quit drinking and using, um, I kind of had. An idea about, you know, I'm not going to be able to play music anymore or, you know, a variety of different things around that. Uh, and with both playing music and with writing, I'm just amazed. And it's not like you don't have to figure out a way to call forth the muse. Um, you know, in, in my case for music, it's you set some, some performances and you get, uh, some people together to play and that inspires you um and so i get the problem that you're identifying but i know i'm a much better uh, musician and definitely a much more pleasant person uh not not using uh or drinking and uh and a much better writer there's just so many ideas that don't make it to the page uh or and you know so many ways that your life disintegrates around using drugs and alcohol um, that it's you know I I always think about we, sometimes we say we're grateful for our addictions because they led us to where we are now and I sort of feel that way but I certainly wouldn't want to wish it on anybody I think you can get you can get uh, to a creative place in a in a whole different way and. I think that's happening now. You see some really amazing artists coming up, young artists who are stone sober from the get-go, and their culture is changing. I think that stuff is, uh, you know, there aren't that F. Scott Fitzgerald idea about writing is is gone. Yeah, uh, that's that. That is interesting, and and I mean, I guess the I guess the message here is that. Um, there, there's no, uh, there's no shortcuts here. If you want to be a writer, you have to sweat it. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's not a matter of, gee, I, I can, I can, I can smoke something or shoot up or, or, or get drunk or whatever, and I'm suddenly going to be this genius. It's more a matter of, um, 
those things are in in some respects i would think kind of separate from any uh any real achievement you're going to make as a writer or as a musician you know any in, anywhere in the arts really uh um yeah your art i totally agree with that dave i think that's that's really true there's just and there are just so many people who are affected by substance use you know we call it a disorder but uh that problem basic problem of addiction almost feels like the human condition to me uh and everybody's got to figure out their way around it uh and it's not substance use for everybody it's other things but uh getting past that thing where you feel like you crave something and then you just go for it uh and learning to deal with your impulses and lead a healthy and complete life that's kind of everybody's task yeah so hmm. you could have this discussion about you know don't you think all the great plumbers <laughs> are drinkers <laughs> because you know i've run into a lot of really good plumbers who spend a lot of time drinking but i think it's just reality that that human beings have a tendency to get addicted yeah that and again uh it's certainly possible to be a darn good plumber without without abusing substances yes. <laughs> and it's an important and, uh, point. <laughs> yeah, many many people have done it. So, <laughs> Gary, I'm, I'm curious. To, I'm just sort of wondering. You know, this is a group that you, I think you said started about uh, six years ago. It came out of the uh, it came out of the uh, Hungry Hearts uh, uh, film by Bess O'Brien and and uh, and and the kind of uh, support that that, that was uh, came up around that film and what were people going to do to continue the energy that that project so helpfully uh, generated um where's this going to be in 10 years better not perfect um i would say um, we mm-hmm. have so many amazing amazing dedicated hard-working incredible people in vermont working on this problem right now you know and and johnny and all the all the people at the turning point in Middlebury and in Barrie and in Burlington and, and uh, all the people at Central Vermont Hospital who have a great, you know, monthly meeting where they bring in professionals from, from all around Central Vermont um, to talk about the problem. You know, all, all the people, everybody, it's a, it's a huge team effort. And I think, you know, the Hungry Heart deserves credit for bringing up that conversation and forwarding it probably earlier than any other state. I mean, it's a fact that Vermont is recognized for getting on this problem. Um, Governor Scott coming in with his State of the Union. I'm sorry, that was Governor, was Governor Shumlin, sorry. Um, back mm-hmm. then with his State of the Union, you know, and getting us focused on that. Um, the whole hub and spoke treatment model which is really incredible. The recovery coach program, which is just mind blowing. You know, if you, if you go to a hospital in Vermont and, you know, for a broken finger, they're going to ask you about your substance use level. And if you say that you would like some support, there will be a recovery coach in the emergency room. I think they guarantee it within 30 minutes to talk to you. Maybe Johnny can give some more details, but. That's, that's well, not quite program. that quick in rural Vermont, but within 45 minutes anyway, we get in there and meet with people. I just met with somebody yesterday, and I do that. I'm on call all the time, and, uh, and we love going in. And then the big thing is that we follow up with people for 
a couple of weeks afterwards where we're talking to folks every day uh, and helping them connect with recovery uh, and programs, including there are people I have met in the emergency room who are now part of Writers for Recovery. So, hmm. In, in all all of these efforts, I'm I'm wondering, um, is there any way to measure effectiveness? In other words, does Vermont, you know, after years of of, of doing all of these all of these things you just described, which certainly do sound helpful, but do we end up with a lower rate of uh, of addiction in our general population than say I don't know, pick a state, North Dakota or Georgia or or uh, you know uh, Nevada? That's a really hard question to answer, Dave. Um, I'm not sure, but I do know that, you know, COVID definitely threw us a, a, a curveball. Um, the inability of people to go to in-person um, recovery meetings, the inability for people to just connect in, in, you know, friendships, the isolation, that's that's all set us back. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know... Statistically, I'm sure the Department of Health can tell you, you know, maybe, maybe Dr. Levine could come in and, and tell you all about that. I'm sure he could because he's been totally amazing, although now he's quite occupied with COVID. Yeah. Um, but he's yeah. fantastic. And, and um, you know, but I don't know what the statistics are. I have to say I'm hoping and I believe it will get better. Um, but it, as, as Johnny mentioned, you know, it's kind of the human condition that this happens, and we're not, I don't think we're ever going to solve it completely. Yeah. yeah the, what, what is it about the human condition that is, uh, I mean, I, I, the way Johnny was describing it, Johnny, maybe I'll, I'll ask you this question since you kind of got me onto this. Uh, I mean, it almost sounds like you're, you're walking this path through life, and, and along the path there, there are... Uh, there are all these, uh, I don't know, traps and stuff, uh, that could kind of suck you in. Um, wh- why is that? Yeah, um, you know, there, there's kind of a, a slender sadness or some suffering to being a human being. And we have this sort of deluded notion that, um, that if we just chase pleasure as fast and as hard as we can and run away from pain uh, and there's a maybe a good reason for that because we evolved in a situation where you really have to chase pleasure and run away from pain to survive but that's not where we are now uh, and we've just got to adjust uh, and it requires uh, some real mindfulness and some real uh, hard looks at, at yourself and your behavior um, and getting control of that because I know it doesn't work to just run after everything that seems pleasurable. A little is good and more must be better. Uh, that, that got us where we, where we were when that State of the Union address happened and, uh, and now we're trying to get back. And I do think a lot of people have uh, recovered and continue to recover and we continue yeah. to see more and more people who have gotten over it. Uh, That's great. Hey, I hate to interrupt, but I got it. We got to get Johnny Waddell and uh, Gary Miller of Writers for Recovery. Thanks very much for joining me this morning. Thanks Thanks so much for inviting us. Nice to talk to you. Take care. Yep, you too. 
That's about it for today's edition of the Dave Graham Show. Join us again tomorrow morning. Stay tuned now for Bill Sayer Common Sense Radio, and have a good day, everybody.